has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alexian Taffy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Gender Stories. I am thrilled. I know I say this every time, but I do have the most amazing friends and communities. So I am thrilled to introduce Patchmans. They're an award-winning writer of teen fiction. Um, she's also a lover of language and is also a lover of stories as a writer. And so I'm really excited to have a conversation with you, Pat, about all the things you love. Anything I've forgotten in the introduction? I don't think so. I'm just really happy to have a conversation with my friend Alex about gender and writing and whatever else we talk about. That's great. Uh, and just for you listeners, if you got confused because I used like a whole bunch of different pronouns introducing Pat, that's their preference as I understand it. So I use all these different uh, pronouns to introduce him. Great. Yeah. Uh, so when we were talking about what to talk about, um, I asked you, what are you really passionate? And of course, you're passionate about language. So why don't we start from there? Why don't you tell me a little bit about why language is so important to you? The thing I really love about language and the study of language is that in different languages, you actually are forced to express yourself differently. And I'm so interested in, for instance, the ways using the English language, um, it funnels my language into a particular way of thinking. Whereas if I'm expressing myself in American Sign Language or in Japanese, I, I actually have to shift conceptually inside of my own, my own head and my own thoughts and ideas in order to express in that different language. And... Um, I just, to me, that's really fascinating, and it makes makes me much more conscious when I am using English of both the strengths of English. For instance, if you want a particular specific word for a particular specific thing, English is really great for that. However, if you want to have more kind of um, amorphous uh, conceptual things that don't have quite as sharp of boundaries on the ideas, English is not that great of a language. Mm-hmm. I definitely relate to that because English is my second language and often when people see me uh, speak Italian they always say like it's, it's like a different person like mm-hmm. you speak at a different decibel a different speed like you look different in terms of how I move my body and and how I relate to other people and it and it, that's definitely true from my experience it's not there's something about that shapes you know for, my, for me as an immigrant kind of how has English shaped me over those years and now does my mother tongue of Italian has shaped me from the beginning and now the two interact as endlessly fascinating so I can totally understand the fascination with language it is and I feel like each new language that I start to go into and learn it, it it expands my internal world, mm-hmm. and it expands my uh, the way I think of stories. And I might still be expressing them through English in the same way, but the story in my head, which then becomes the story that I express, is broader and more expansive, and to me, more exciting. 
That's wonderful. You're so good because I was totally going to say going to story. I was going to say, so how does kind of language shapes our stories, right? And so not just kind of the stories we tell, but literally how we tell them and how we craft the language around them. And so I'm interested about how you manage that tension between the story feeling more expansive internally, but still being funneled through a specific tool, which is the English language in your case. Well, I was really challenged with that with the book Lizard Radio. Um, and that honestly is the book of my heart. That is the book that I I poured my everything into. And I could not express in English many of the things I was trying to do with Lizard Radio. And so there is a, an entire different vocabulary in Lizard Radio mm-hmm. that I know readers have found challenging. They're like, why don't you just use English words? And it was because I had concepts in my head that we don't have English words for. And so... I did a lot of language play with that and going back and looking at roots of the English roots of words and then playing with it to shift it a little bit. And um, I I actually had a really good time with the language in that book. Um, It has been interesting to hear some of the pushback about how it's been difficult for readers Mm -hmm. um, to then engage in that world. And when I was writing that book, I really was living in a different world Mm. for the months and months that I was working on it. And that was... You know, that was exciting to me. That was a joy to me. And the challenge as a writer is always, how do I take that fictive dream mm-hmm. in my own head and transmit it into symbols on the page so that the reader can then have their own fictive dream, mm-hmm. um, which will never be the same as mine. That's not necessarily the challenge. The challenge for me is to give it through the symbols in a way that the reader can have a fluid dream, whether it matches mine or not, that they have a fluid dream without having to stop and go, wait, what? I want them to just have a dream that's based on my dream. And to me, that's the magic of writing. I don't know what story you read. I give you the story I have, mm-hmm. and then you create your own story. And sometimes readers will say, like, oh, I love the part in the book where blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, huh? In my story, there wasn't that blah, blah, blah part. But I hear that there was for you, and I'm so happy that those the funnel of the words expanded into that for you. I love, yeah, that's how communication works, right? We put something out in the world, something happens in between, and then something else happens in our lands. And and often that's what makes communication so exciting and so challenging at the same time, right? (laughs) So I'm curious, if you're willing to tell me a little bit more about what was that dream world of Lizard Radio? Like, what did the world look like? How did it feed the story? Um... Because my assumption is that the the dream is more expansive sometimes that can go into the story, right? So I'm really interested in that landscape. What was it like for you to be in land, that landscape? Well, the landscape, I mean, it's neither a dystopia nor a utopia. In my mind, it is as if we took our world that we have right now and we just shifted it slightly askew. There were different decision points that created different endpoints along the way. And, you know, just thinking like, what would happen if, um, you know, for instance, around gender, mm-hmm. if the what people ended up doing was saying, okay, people can change genders, that's fine, we're good with that, but we're not having any of this in the middle stuff, you have to clearly be one gender mm-hmm. or another, so we are going to honor the fact that sometimes people don't fit that, and we are going to help children decide which gender they're going to be, and we're going to really enforce that. Um, And then what happens to kids who fall in the middle? 
because, of course, we're very in flux right now in the United States, particularly in our culture. We're in flux about what do we do with those kids who mm-hmm. land in the middle. So this took a, a very particular governmental stance on, well, we're going to do this. Mm. And then for me to follow the what-if train of for the kid in the middle. But also... Um, Lizard Radio really explores the, is the reality we're living in the only one? Which is actually a theme I go back to in every single book I write. Is there a different reality? Can you just, like, put your hands through that shimmering surface there and you're in a different reality? And are, are there thousands of realities all happening? And how do you choose? Because as a writer, you get to choose which one to go into. And so Lizard Radio really plays with those ideas as well. Like, what are these communications that are, you know, are they just thoughts in our own head? Are they dreams? Are they a communication from somewhere else? So I really enjoyed playing with that. And I actually, um, I use John Coltrane's music as my background music for writing Mm -hmm. because it is so outside any binary. It is so outside any strict structure, Um, at least in... In comparison to most music I'm used to listening to. And so I felt like it constantly shook my brain up. I love that. And I would love to know, like, why did it feel like such an important story for you to tell? The story of what happens to the kids who fall, who fall in the middle. Like, and, you know, it's a lot about gender. And Lisa Radio, I believe, won a Tip Tree Award mm-hmm. for the awesome work it does, really, in kind of uh, addressing gender in a specific way. So why was this a story close to your heart, I think? Well, for me, obviously, it's because I have struggled. And, well, I wouldn't say I struggled. As a child, I didn't struggle with, gen- struggle with gender until the world started to struggle with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never fallen comfortably into either or any gender. And... I've had different strategies in my life to deal with that in different ways. And um, by the time I wrote Lizard Radio, I already had some success with publishing. And that was a point where I went, okay, now I'm going to tell the story I really want to tell. And it might sell or it might not, but this is actually the story I have to tell. Because every one of my books, my characters in some way do not actually fit the gender binary. But this is the one where I decided to just be right out there about it and say, you know what? This is the story I have to tell that plays both with that in-between space with gender and with other realities and all kinds of different binaries of, you know, are you a leader or a follower? Are you a this or a that? What if it's always both or neither? Mm-hmm. And because I was that kid, I was the kid who was constantly saying, I don't want to choose this or that. Mm-hmm. I want to do it some other way. And our culture is often not kind. No. Yeah. To people who don't want to be this or that. And so for me, it was very important to just go all out on that. And the writing process of it, I would say, was both um, excruciating and amazing and and beautiful and frustrating and all of it to try to get those words in a way that I could give the story to others the best that I could. And I was frustrated in my own inability to get it exactly how it was in my head. You know, that's the challenge of, I think, every artist is to try to give the world the picture that we have. Yeah. Through this very narrow channel right. of language, right? right. <laughs> so how do you feel this story was received by kind of the general audience? How, obviously, your fellow writers recognize what a beautiful and 
well-crafted and important story it is in terms of addressing gender with the Teep Tree Award, but how do you think it landed for your readers? Well, thanks for saying that. Actually, the, the Tip Tree Award was amazing for me. Like, to receive that award was, you know, that, there, that even such award e- even exists, you know, to explore and expand the idea of gender. In fact, should we even say what the award is about? I realize that if people don't know what a Tip Tree is, they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah, so it's, it's the James Tip Tree Award, which is given every year to a work of I, I believe it's science fiction or fantasy I believe so. that expands or explores the idea of gender. And so it was a huge honor for me to get that because I felt like, oh, somebody got it. <laughs> somebody understood what I was trying to do. I have felt like the reception, like a lot of people loved the idea. They were like, oh, you wrote a book about gender exploration. Great. And then I felt like I met with a lot, you know, both in reviews and from individuals, like I didn't really get it or... Huh. <laughs> or, um, wow, I, I couldn't figure out what was going on in there. But I have had individual emails and communications from people who have been like, oh, this was, like, I never had anyone say how I felt before. And mm-hmm. those are the things that have made it for me. I just got one a couple of weeks ago from a, a reader who's 19 now and said, I read that when I was 17, and it blew my whole world open, and now I call myself a bender, and... And, like, thank you so much. And and then I feel like those individual communications in the big picture are so much more important than, you know, how well the book has done in the world. Because it hasn't actually done that well in the world. It came out at a time of some explosion in teen lit around um, gender and trans and queer stuff coming out. And I think people are much more comfortable well, they're much more comfortable with something that's just straight English all the way through. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also more comfortable with um, with the storyline of the child who's born into the wrong body mm. and needs to transition, and they transition to be the opposite gender, and, you know, they go through their struggles, and they face violence, and then they come out the other side, a beautiful new gender of the opposite of what they were. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be a storyline that people are much more comfortable with. Well, I guess that's a storyline that doesn't really challenge dominant culture and the whole kind of legacy of settler colonialism and the gender, the essentialism of the gender binary to some degree, right? Right. And yeah. so there's some comfort in that for folks. And I think for some people, it's like, you know what? It's hard enough to get the idea that you used mm. to be a girl and now you're a boy, but you used to be a girl and now you're a what? Yeah. You're a what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, well, and, and what's interesting to me is like who's writing these stories, right? There's mm-hmm. been an explosion of the cisgender, so people who are um, assigned a sex at birth and then their gender identity aligns with that of kind of cisgender authors writing kind of this more trans and at, at times even non-binary characters. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, whereas, you know, for you, like you said, Lisa Radio was a story close to your heart because of your own experience. Right. So what do you think is the importance of people telling the story of their heart and their experience, you know, rather than people trying to diversify their books or, you know. Well, there is the, you know, the hashtag own voices. Yes. That is, um, I I just think is really, a really important concept. I don't think it means, oh, you can't write anyone who's different than you. Mm-hmm. Um, because, of course, we're, we're in the world of fiction. Yeah. Um, But the question I have to ask myself, I think as a writer, is if I want to write a protagonist story 
That is not my experience. I need to be able to answer the question, honestly, in-depth, multi-layered, why do I need to write that story? And for, for instance, for Lizard Radio, it was very simple for me to say why I need to write that story. Mm-hmm. Now, if I, for instance, were going to write a story about a, a black man's experience, I would need to really seriously ask myself, why do I think that's my story to tell? Are there other people who can tell that story better than me? Mm-hmm. And if there are, why would I want to add my voice into that? Now, I might have a really good reason. Yeah. And for the authors who do, I support them 100% to do their research, Mm -hmm. do the book, and do it well. But if my reason is just that I want to help somebody, Mm -hmm. or I think it's an interesting idea, then it's a good time, I feel like, for me to sit down. And that's okay. Everybody doesn't have to tell every story. Mm -hmm. And so I think think own voices is really important Mm -hmm. across the board in all kinds of different sort of storytelling. And it's it's not a strict rule of you can do this and you can't do that because I've heard people mm-hmm. rail against the strict rule. It's fiction. I have a big imagination. Why of can't course. I? Mm-hmm. But it's an ethical question of why do I need to tell this story? And mm-hmm. if I can answer it satisfactorily, great. Absolutely. And um, I love this idea of like, it's not just can I tell it, but what is what? why am I compelled to tell this story, right? Mm-hmm. And then... You know, if it is to help other people, this idea, how does this perpetuate this idea that certain uh, identities can only be almost like objects, mm-hmm. right, rather than subjects. And I think, for me at least, the hashtag on voices is really about claiming agency and yes. being able to be subject in our own stories for a lot of folks of marginalized identities who are not as represented as authors, you know, not just as characters, but actually as authoring right. our own stories. and. Yes, and I don't need yeah. a savior to tell my story for me. Yes. What I appreciate, and I have been fortunate and privileged enough to have, is access to the platform to tell my own story. Yeah. And that, that is what, when we talk about we need diverse books, that's what we need is access for all those different voices to tell our stories. Yeah. Not for someone else to do it for us. <laughs> And the importance of what happens when people, readers see themselves not just in the characters, but also the authors of Mm -hmm. stories, right? And when we were um, talking about what to talk about in the podcast, very mad our conversation, we we touched on the importance of seeing yourself in books. Mm -hmm. And so I know that even just being visible in the world, I remember at a conference, a, a younger person telling me, it made a huge impact that you said you were kind of genderqueer, gender fluid, and you're over 30. Because I thought that was something I had to get over, mm-hmm. you know, in air quotes, by the time college was out. And actually, it's a sustainable identity I could have into adulthood, which was something that I hadn't seen before. And so I wonder if you can say a little bit about the importance of people seeing themselves in your books, but also seeing themselves maybe in you as an author in the world. I do think it's really important. And I, I, I do a lot of middle school and high school visits. I have done more in the past where I feel like I walk in that room and, well, when I started doing this like 25 years ago, I felt like I had to walk in the room and quickly get all of the kids' attention and form the rapport really quickly because I knew they were, especially in middle school, very busy going, what is it? What is that? Is that a boy or a girl? Is that a boy? Why do they look like that? And so I had to engage them quickly before they had a chance to judge me as such a weirdo that they couldn't talk to me. And that has really changed significantly. 
um, which has been a delight that I actually sometimes go into classrooms now and I introduce myself with my pronouns Mm -hmm. and just kind of get that out of the way. And and in many places, kids are much more matter-of-fact about that. But something I've been doing since way back then is I walk in the classroom and I scan, and if there is a kid in there who looks like they're of indeterminate gender, I make sure to make eye contact with that child. And I don't point them out or do anything mm-hmm. in particular to them, but I make very sure that I am accessible visually to them. And sometimes they'll come up and ask me some question afterward, and I just I think, okay, that was my job here today, was to be a visible adult that you can't tell if I'm male or female. Mm-hmm. And that it's not because I'm trying to play a trick yeah. on anybody. No. It just is actually who I am in the yeah. world. And, uh, and I, I used to get a lot more curious questions about, are you married? Hmm. And I would say our culture has changed significantly in that I don't get that question anymore. And I no longer dread, I used to dread that they would ask, are you gay? Because 30 Hmm. years ago, to be asked in a classroom if you were gay was really difficult for an adult to figure out how to handle. Absolutely. And now that question is no longer hard to handle. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't think it's really relevant to my presentation usually. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's no longer like, what do I say if that comes up? How do I deflect? Mm-hmm. So that's been a change that's good. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like it's been a good change that I feel like teachers and administrators are much more comfortable with me now. Mm-hmm. It used to be I would show up and I would feel like they kind of went, <gasps> <laughs> this is not the author we're looking for. <laughs> and then they would do a lot of like miss, they'd call me Miss Pat and, and like, which <laughs> I just really hate. And that that level of discomfort seems to have eased off and also after lizard radio came out now they know yeah and so they know what they're getting yeah which is much more comfortable for me like you know what if your school's not comfortable with me coming in looking the way i look and being how i am i'd rather not visit really yeah although i feel for the kids who are in that school because i know there are those schools and i know there are those kids oh yes and i'm just like just 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 survive and get out of there Mm. Yeah, I feel that as a therapist who works with with kids as well and adolescents specifically. And so you talked a little bit about the change you've seen in culture and in school. And I wonder if you've noticed a change in the writing industry as well in terms of how you've been, you know, you said you could write Lisa Radio because Mm -hmm. you had some level of having an established platform. So I wonder what's been like to navigate the actual kid writing industry. The kid-lit industry has is pushing itself to change. The We Need Diverse Books movement mm-hmm. has actually had a significant influence. Um, unfortunately, what has happened, if you look at the, the CCBC, that's the Cooperative Center for Books for Children in Madison, at UW-Madison, they track the statistics of all kids' books published every mm-hmm. year. It's really interesting if you want to look them up. And what has happened is that The actual progress has been very slow. Why? Because the publishing industry itself is still mostly dominated by cis white women. Mm. And so even as the stories start to bump their way up there, there's still the, like, you have to deal with the editor to, like, you know, some. I work with Candlewick. It's actually a fabulous company to work with. Um, They're the best. They really, really challenge themselves in so many ways. But there's still the, like, I have to push to say, well, for instance, when the advanced review copy came out of my next book, The Key to Everything, and that's about an 11-year-old child who, there is nothing in that story anywhere to make you think that child would ever wear a pink headband. 
And suddenly when the advanced review copies came out on the cover, the child had a pink headband on. Ooh. And I lost it. I completely lost it. I called my editor. I'm like, ah, oh, what's going on? <laughs> this can't be. And she's like, oh, yeah, I noticed that it was blue and they changed it to pink. I'm like, why blue? We don't need a headband at all. A child would never wear a headband. Who would give it to her? Nobody. Because the headband is a gender marker in itself. It is a gender mm -hmm. marker. Mm -hmm. And I had to have a conversation about why that was not a gender marker. Mm. And, and I honestly think nobody had bad intention there. Mm -hmm. But that is the thing where, you know, those of us who are pushing have to keep pushing. And I was saying about the CCBC statistics, they're slowly climbing for books that have... I mean, it's, it's shockingly slow for people of color. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. has, it has started to move much faster for um, non-binary, mm -hmm. queer, gay kids. It, it, and the problem is that what they're getting is more and more books with kids or small animals or whatever mm -hmm. yeah. who are not white or um, not cisgender. But the authorship has not changed nearly mm -hmm. as quickly. What would you what do you think it would take for the authorship to change? Like what do we what does the industry need? The industry absolutely needs more queer people and people of color and people with disabilities in positions of power in the publishing industry. Mm -hmm. That is going to change it more than anything else. Um, I think there's things that for instance I as a white writer can do. Um, I I mentor other authors who I have a harder time finding a platform. Um, part of it is, I think also, and this is really a thing, like, don't speak on all white panels. Yeah. Don't speak on all straight panels. Mm -hmm. You know what? Sometimes I don't need to be the one who speaks. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I don't need to be the one who writes the next book. If I have something that I am compelled to say, first I need to think about why am I compelled to say it? Is anyone else saying it? And if I'm not, I can take a rest. It's okay. And I think, you know, it's the same question as the writing. Like, when is the point where, rather than me saying, like, me, me, my book, my book, I can say, please, let me introduce you to my friend who's doing this fabulous work. Mm. Please, my friend who's doing this fabulous work, let me help you kick some of those doors down because I know how because of my particular privilege yes. and luck and access. Let me help you with that. And it is one thing that's nice about the kid-lit world is that it tends to be much more cooperative and communal, mm -hmm. I think, than adult writing. Um, but we can do more with that. And I think it's really important to try to get all the voices out there. And I've been fortunate to have a platform, and I think a lot of that comes from, you know, the race and class privilege that I have coming into it. And... It still has been a long road to feel like I could write the story I really wanted to write. And part of that road, of course, was internal. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, am I going to be okay? You know, years of habit of, um, is this an okay setting for me to be myself? Do mm -hmm. I need to be closeted or low-key? Or mm -hmm. And I really have hit in the last few years, like, I don't care. Yeah. Well, and that internal struggle is shaped by systemic oppression. Yeah, right? absolutely. So even with your race and class privilege, there were still barriers and there, were, there was still a level. And then let's imagine for like trans and, and or non-binary queer authors of color, then it's 
Right. That's magnified because of that intersection. Right. Because I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and so it -hmm. it took a lot of internal work Mm -hmm. to slowly be able to go like, no, this is actually who I am. Mm -hmm. And, And who you are is amazing, and your books are wonderful. And this new book, The Key to Everything, right, mm-hmm. is the new book. In, you said, you know, Lizard Radio was the book of your heart. What's the piece of your heart in The Key to Everything, especially if there is a piece of your heart around gender, which I'm assuming there is, given the strong feelings you had about how the cover looked. Mm-hmm. Well, this, this book for me is really the book around chosen family mm-hmm. and the idea that your biological family is not necessarily the family that is going to bring you up and give you the support and love that you need to actually be who you are. So it's a combination of looking at that and also intergenerational friendship, which is different than intergenerational. From, and, and we don't even have words for it in English, no. that kind of intergenerational friendship. And it is about an intergenerational friendship, and it's specifically a friendship of an older lesbian with a younger non-binary kid. Mm. And although, you know, it's it's a book for younger kids, it's like for 8 to 11 year olds. And so, you know, there's not, there's, anybody's sexuality and gender is not mm-hmm. the focus of the story, but it is the book I would have loved to have read as a kid myself. Mm. Because this, I, I love the kid in the book, actually, and it was great for me to write that kid in exactly the way they are, and to give them an adult friend in their life who had a lot of room for them to just be who they are and actually create more room for them mm-hmm. like go ahead push that boundary stretch that so That's amazing so that was the driving force for me around that and i also i was writing it as i was um my mother was dying and i was her primary caretaker and kind of helping her through that piece and so there's a lot in there about the idea of ideas of getting older and dying and how does that work and how does that affect you know the people around you your friends of whatever age absolutely i can't wait to read it i oh, love all your books like <laughs> so i'm well i'm really excited Give, given your track record i'm pretty sure i'm gonna love the new book as well, well so. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> so i feel like this conversation could probably go on for a long time and i want to be respectful of your time as well we'll keep I, having it off mic i'm sure exactly <laughs> and you know we can we can also have another podcast kind of later down the line if we want to but i'm wondering if there is anything that i haven't asked you about today that you really hoped uh, to talk about or you wanted to talk about around this intersection of gender and story and language and and kid lit hmm I think the hardest thing for me is that English does not do well with non-binary gender. It's Mm. so difficult with the pronouns, and it's so difficult. Our our language is so entrenched with the idea of the gender binary in so many different ways, and it's a challenge. And I have been completely grateful for the younger generations who are creative with that flow of language, and I'm I'm taking it on and using much of it for myself and. I think that's the thing as a writer of books for young people is that it means I get to have a lot of interaction and interchange with them mm-hmm. and so much gratitude for the way they keep exploding my world open. And so I keep looking forward to more of that. Right, because language is evolving. And so it's really nice to see how the kind of younger generations are pushing those boundaries. They don't so, have any problem with right? they as a singular pronoun. No, it's really easy so for them. If they can do it, we can do it. <laughs> 
Yeah, I love that. Oh, thank you. This has been an amazing conversation. And I hope you've enjoyed it just as much as I've enjoyed kind of interviewing Pat. If you want to find out more about Pat's work, you can go to their website, patschmatz.com. That's P-A-T-S-C-H-M-A-T-Z.com. And you can find their whole body of work and, and more about Pat. And then if you're just interested about learning more about gender in generally, you can check out, yes, this is my self-promotion part, the book that I've written with Mac John Barker, How Do I Understand Your Gender? Oh, it's practical. such a good book. I just want to say it is such a good book. I used it as a workbook. I love it for myself. I've given it to, I don't even, I've probably given it to 10 different people already and more to come. Oh my God. I, I, I feel like, I hope your listeners could see me like blush really hard right now. It's like this thing where, you know, as a creator in the world, you have to let people know what you've created. And at the same time, it's a really weird thing to do. So thank you for that testimonial. I know. I'm so glad you said it because I didn't even think of this. Like, yeah, that book came out and I went, why is this book not everywhere? This book mm. needs to be everywhere. So I'm doing my own small part to have that book be everywhere. Thank you. And please check out our publishers too. Pat has already talked about their publisher. Jessica Kingsley also has an amazing gender diversity list and they're very much committed to this work of own voices. And so I really want to kind of lift up my ad- editor, Andrew James, has done such a good job at kind of seeking out trans and donor binary authors. And uh, for today, thank you for listening. And until the next time we meet, keep expanding those boundaries of gender. Thank you.